history. Uh, Queen Jezebel, who's really infamous for her bloodthirsty pursuit of God's true prophets, Israel was following her lead, and she was going to systematically remove all of the true, the worship of the true God from Israel. So she was going to wipe out all worship of Yahweh, systematically killing off all of God's prophets. So to this situation, God sent his prophet, uh, excuse me, he sent his prophet Elijah. And Elijah gathers all of the people of Israel at Mount Carmel. And he, he puts it right to him. He puts the question right before them, an ultimatum. Choose who you're going to follow. You're, you're wavering back and forth between worshiping Yahweh and worshiping Baal. Today you've got to decide. If Baal's God, go worship him. If Yahweh's God, worship him. And he waits for a response. And they don't say anything. They're not going to pick a side. And so he says, okay, we are going to t- put this to the test. There are 450 prophets of Baal. There is one prophet of Yahweh. We're going to set up a test here. They're going to set up a little altar with wood and a, and a bull, a sacrifice, and, and I'm going to set up an altar with wood and a sacrifice. No one's going to use a match. We're going to find out who the true God is. And so the test is set. 450 prophets of Baal on the one hand, one prophet of Yahweh on the other hand, and the Baal prophets get to start first. So they set off early in the morning. They set up their little altar, they set up their sacrifice, and they start praying. This is what happens. We're picking up in uh, 1 Kings 18. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. So they're starting early. They're going all the way up till noon here. They're crying, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And this is the part where I think it's, this is one of my favorite parts of the story here. At noon, so this has been going on for hours, hours, early in the morning. Now it's noontime. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, which is actually a euphemism for perhaps he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So Baal has had his chance. 450. So, you know, two to three times the amount of people in this room all yelling around this altar, calling on this this supposed God Baal to do something about this. Frantic. Cutting themselves. Like, they're, they're really into the worship of this particular God. They really want him to answer and prove himself. And he's met with silence. After all that noise, after all that nonsense, Elijah calmly sets up his altar, puts the sacrifice on, and just to be doubly sure about it, he pours water over it. Then he pours water over it again, and he pours water over it a third time. No funny business here. This is what happens. Elijah prays to God. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, Yahweh, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Isn't that a great moment? I mean, think about, can you imagine having been there? You're living in this cultural climate of accommodation and vacillating and just spineless people. You're not sure, you know, we're supposed to worship Yahweh, but, but Baal seems all right too, and the leaders are taking you that direction. 
And then right before your eyes, Yahweh proves in spectacular fashion that he is the only God, that there is no one who can stand in his face. The Bible's full of stories like this. I think, what would it have been like to be there? Wouldn't it have been amazing to be there? When, and when Jesus fed 5,000 people with one little lunch, can you imagine having been there? Or when God parted the waters of the Red Sea so that Israel could walk through, can you imagine having been there for that? Or when Jesus quietly woke up a girl who had died, can you imagine seeing the incredible work of God? What do you do if you see something like that? That's what we're looking at this morning. We're continuing our series in Psalms. This morning is Psalm 66. How do you worship God when you see his great power? What, what, how do you worship God when you see him act in an incredible way? If you haven't uh, turned there already, I do invite you to turn to Psalm 66. You'll want to have that in front of you as we proceed here. It's found on page 570 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 66. So we're going to see what it looks like for the psalmist to worship God when he sees an incredible work of God. And then we're going to kind of take that and see if we can light a little bit of a fire here. So here's what we're going to see. In in the excitement of seeing God work, the psalmist is going to call the whole world to respond. He's going to show us what it means for the world to respond to God's great acts. And then he's going to bring it down to the individual level and show us what it means for each of us to respond to God's great acts. So Psalm 66. We'll look at the first part first. What the world should do in response to God's incredible work. So we start in verses 1 through 4. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing the praises of your name. Psalm 66 isn't the kind of verse of scripture or chapter of scripture where you're supposed to kind of read it casually and sit back and the psalmist doesn't want you to be able to kind of pass over the words and say okay that's interesting he he wants you to hear this and to get up and to make some noise he wants you to be uncomfortable with the amount of uh, praise that's in your heart so that you can't just sit there and bottle it up calmly but it's it's overflowing it's bursting forth shout for joy sing to god say to god how awesome are your deeds He envisions the whole world responding to God in joyful praise, singing at the top of their lungs. Why? Last week when we looked at Psalm 63, we saw that praise and worship was was rooted in in who God is, in God's being, God's character, getting a glimpse of of who he actually is in himself. And that's where praise came from in Psalm 63. But but this time we're seeing that praise comes from seeing God do something. It's praise rooted in God's actions, his deeds. Verse 3 says that that God's power pours out so that that God's enemies can't stand before him. So God's enemies before, they were kind of arrogantly opposing him and his purposes. But now they've seen him act in power and there's no chance. They cringe in fear. And that's actually really good news for the world because who are God's enemies? Well, they're the people that contribute to all of the pain and the fear and the anxiety in the world. God's enemies are those who oppose his justice, who work injustice, who oppose his peace, who bring bloodshed. 
So when God stops his enemies, when he works in power so that God's enemies are cringe in front of him, that's a good thing for the world. That's good news. And when the world sees that, they bow down because they know that God is on the throne. And that's good news. Here's how one commentator summarizes the last verse here. Overwhelmed by the glory of God displayed by his deed, the world falls to its collective knees in wonder and praise of his name. So this is, the op- this is just the opening stanza. We're going to get five of these stanzas. This is just the opening one. He's saying you've got, when you see God work, you stand up, you shout, because this is a glorious thing. God's power working out for the good of the world. So here's the opening scene. It's global praise, everyone shouting at the top of their lungs, singing God's praise. I think if we really had a sense of what God does, if we really knew his work, that would happen all the time. We wouldn't have to try to kind of work up in ourselves some excitement about God. If we really knew what he was doing, we would always be pouring forth with this. Some of you might have seen this, but someone here posted the disconnect between how we follow sports and how we worship God. And, and for sports, where even if you're watching on TV, you're, something good happens to your team. One of these young kids, like 25-year-old kid, shoots a little round disc past a red line, and everyone stands up and yells at the top of their lungs. Even at their TV, they're yelling at their TV, they're screaming, they're saying, that's awesome. And you get whole stadiums, whole arenas, tens of thousands of people together when one little good thing happens from one of these kids playing with a ball or playing with a puck or something like that. One good thing happens and the whole stadium erupts in uproarious applause. How much more, if we really understood the work of God in the world, how much more should we stand and joyfully shout his praise and and joyfully sing to the glory of his name? That's what the psalmist is talking about. He continues, verse 5. Come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise against him. The first commands that the psalmist gave were about singing and shouting for joy. And now it's about seeing God's work. It's come and see what God has done. And specifically here, it's come see what God has done for his people Israel. Verse 6 is pointing back to the pivotal act of God's redemption for his people. Removing them from slavery in Egypt, setting them free through the exodus. This is the formative event for the people of Israel. When they wanted to know who they were as a people and what God had done for them, they'd look back to this great deliverance through the Exodus. They were, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt under the strong arm of Pharaoh. But God remembered his people. He sent his servant Moses to go and and to show Pharaoh how strong his arm was, that Pharaoh's, in all of his strength, could not stand at all in the face of Yahweh, that that Yahweh was the truly powerful one. And through all of this series of incredible works, Pharaoh finally relented and let the people of Israel go. But then in one last attempt to keep his slaves, Pharaoh changed his mind, sent his whole army after them, and trapped Israel at the edge of the Red Sea. Nowhere to go. And God's people start to panic. And God does the mightiest act he has done yet. He parts the water of the sea and they go through on dry ground and the Egyptians try to follow but the sea closes after them. 
Nothing like that has ever happened before. God saving his people by parting a sea. Yahweh is an incredibly powerful God. And the psalmist is saying, look back to that and remember, this is what roots your praise. God has formed you as a people. He rescued you from slavery in Egypt and gave you a land. He set you free and made you his own people. So the psalmist is saying, that's where your praise comes from. Remember what God has done. If you ever doubt that God is for you and that he is powerful to save, look back to the Exodus and remember what he did to show Pharaoh how strong he was. Remember that God rules the world. That's the interpretation of it in verse 7. What that means, God's power in bringing them out in the Exodus, what that means in verse 7 is that God is on the throne and he rules the entire world. No one can oppose him. That's what that means. The psalmist continues in his call for praise. Verse 8. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. But you brought us to a place of abundance. Now, this is a change of tone in the psalm. Everything so far has been very positive, calling everyone to come and see what God has done. And even in verse 9 here, God preserves our life. He's kept our foot from slipping. It seems like nothing ever can go bad for God's people. And, and yet there are times, the psalmist is saying, when it looks like everything is going wrong, when it looks like God's people are in, in peril. There are times when it looks like God's not strong. It looks like other people are ruling the world. It looks like everything is lost for God's people. But the psalmist is saying here in verse 10 that those moments are not an indication that God is not strong or that he is not for his people. Those are opportunities for God to refine his people, to make them more holy, to make them more dependent upon him. Of course, that's not what it looks like on the ground. Look at verse 11. It feels like they're in prison. It feels like there's a heavy burden laid on their back. People are trampling over their heads. They're going through the biggest extremes. They go through fire. They go through water. And yet, for those who are God's people, the outcome is good. Verse 12. But you brought us to a place of abundance. Maybe you've experienced this. The the church sometimes goes through very difficult periods. Our church has gone through some very rough patches in its history, and some of you have been through these. You can testify to how difficult it is, the the pain of sin coming into the church, and you've seen broken relationships and power struggles and pride and all of these things, messy situations in the church. But for those of you who have been through it, you can testify to God's grace through all of that, so that even even in the midst of that, you can say with the psalmist in verse 8, Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Even when you go through all of those difficult things, you know that God is good and that he is for his people. Even in the midst of difficult times, God is preserving your life. God is keeping your foot from stumbling. He will lead you to a place of abundance because you are his people. So here's what the psalmist is saying in this this first part. The world should respond to God's great acts by 
exuberant praise by standing up and shouting the praise of God's name. The whole world worshiping Yahweh. That's the the kind of global level, how the whole world should respond. Now he's going to bring it down to his own life to show us how each of us individually should respond when we see God work. Let's start in verse 13. The psalmist says, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you in an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. So we see the the focus has gone from group, from the whole world, from all the people of Israel, worshiping and praising God now to the individual. The psalmist is now saying that he is committing himself to worshiping God. And I don't know about you, but I I get the impression that that sometimes when we get in distress, we tend to sort of pray a little bit more desperate prayers. And and sometimes we can kind of attach promises to those as sort of a bargaining chip with God. Like, God, if you bring me through this one thing, if you just get me through this one thing, I, I will come to church every Sunday for a whole month. If you will just do that, then that's what I will do. And maybe that's not exactly what the psalmist is getting at, but he's saying he was in distress And he prayed to God, and he made promises of what he would do when God answered that prayer. And now, having seen God act to save him, he's going to fulfill his part of that. He's going to fulfill his vows. That's what this uh, language in 13 through 15 is all about. He's setting himself to worship God because of what he's seen God do. Now, when we hear about offerings and, and rams and bulls and goats, that's not the kind of thing that we tend to think about when we think about worshiping God. And none of us really bring those things to church. At least I've never done that. I've never seen anyone else do it. But that's exactly what, in the context of the psalmist's world, that's exactly what this is. This is showing allegiance to God. This is showing dependence upon him. It's, it's a worshiping heart. And really, it's extravagant praise. A normal person wouldn't be able to offer the kind of offerings that he's talking about here. He's, he's saying he's going above and beyond. Extravagant worship of God. He continues to give his final testimony in the last stanza here. Verse 16. Come and hear, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. In the closing stanza here, the last set of commands that the psalmist gives, he's giving us a model for what it means, what we are to do when God acts and we see, come and hear what God has done for me. It's his personal testimony. Come and hear what God has done. Now in the midst of that, Verse 18 is a little bit of a a quick little prick. It's a quick little needle jabbing us, reminding us that that your heart matters. He's saying, if I had cherished sin in my heart, God wouldn't have listened to my prayer. In other words, you know, we learned a couple weeks ago in Psalm 32, if if you don't confess your sin, if you just bottle it up and try to let no one find out about your sin, that's going to rot your bones and destroy your relationship with God. But, but as the psalmist found in Psalm 32, when you open up and confess your sin before God, when you lay your heart before him, you find that he forgives you. You find that you are then healed. This is a reminder of the same thing. The psalmist's prayer to God, his prayer of, of faith and prayer for God to work, comes from a heart that has already laid out all of his sin before God. His relationship with God is right, and so he can pray and expect that God will answer. 
So here's what we see. The psalmist is seeing what God has done for him, and he's calling the whole world to come and listen. He's giving testimony to what God has done. God has changed his life, and he wants everyone to come and hear what God has done for me. And this is what we tend to do, right? If something makes a difference in our life, we tend to want to tell other people about it. So when Emily and I were still living in Illinois, we had no, and we were living in a little apartment. We had no room for a, a garden or anything like that. So we found out about this thing called community-supported agriculture, where you can go and kind of buy a share of a, of a little farm somewhere, not too far away from the suburbs, and, and you can go and help out at the farm. So, and then you get a, a big bag of fresh produce every week or so. And so we went one day, and, and I was helping plant basil uh, next to the guy who ran the farm. And he was giving his testimony. He was telling how organic vegetables had changed his life. As I'm sitting there planting the basil, he was saying, you know, I had all these health issues. I was always tired all the time. I was overweight. I was just having lots of problems. But then I switched my diet. I started eating only these organic vegetables, and my weight has dropped. I'm more energetic. I don't have health problems. So he's giving a testimony. This has changed his life. And again, I'm thinking there, wait a second, organic vegetables have changed your life? If, if he's excited to tell other people about what a, a dietary switch has done for him, how much more for those who have seen the powerful work of God in their lives? How much more do we want to be like the psalmist and say, come here, let me tell you what God has done for me? Okay. How do you worship God when you see his power at work? Psalm 66 shows us the whole world is erupting in praise of God. And the individual is saying, come, listen, let me tell you what God has done for me. Now it's time to light a little bit of a fire. Not like Elijah, different kind of fire. Not literal. What the psalmist is doing is connecting the great big work of God's redemption to his life and what God has done in his life. And he's connecting his life in with God's great big work of redemption. That's what the psalmist is modeling for us. He wants everyone in the whole world, he wants all of creation to sing and joyfully shout the praise of God's name because of what he has done in the past, the Exodus, delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he wants everyone to come and hear what God has done in his own life and to worship God for that too. That's what we're called to. You and I are called to do the same thing. For Israel, it was looking back to that monumental act of God's deliverance, his salvation in the Exodus. For us, further along in salvation history, where we are, the monumental act of God's salvation for us is the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's the, the big, pivotal thing that we look back to, to see God's great work on our behalf. The cross is what makes us as Christians into a distinct group. It's what gathers us as a church under the name of Jesus, those who have been set free from sin and set free from death. We've been rescued through Jesus. So we are called to look back and to remember. And generally speaking, I think we're pretty good at that. As a whole, not perfect, but as a whole, as a church, we do pretty good at looking back and remembering that the cross is the pivotal event for us. That's why we have a cross up front here. It's why we do the Lord's Supper every few weeks. We're reminding ourselves that God has done an incredible work of salvation for us. But I think where we have more trouble is connecting our individual lives to that big story of God's redemption. We're good at looking back and saying that's what God did, but sometimes we only think of that as past tense. 
I want to challenge you to think about your own story. What has God done in your life? Why are you here? Some of us have really exciting testimonies that you know, we dropped dead on the side of the road like Jamie and God preserved our life and brought us to faith in him. Some of us have very dramatic testimonies where God has done something powerful and undeniable. But some of us have pretty bland testimonies. I grew up in a Christian home. There was never a point in my growing up years where I didn't think God was an important person or thing. And here I am in church. But that's only a bland testimony if we forget what that means theologically. Here's the truth. It is a miracle of God that any one of us has put our faith in Jesus. That's the truth. It is a miracle of God on the scale of raising us from death to life that any one of us would ever put our faith in Jesus. Even if you grew up in church, your starting point is spiritual death. You were dead. That's what the Bible says. We were dead in our sins, and in Christ we are made alive. That means that for every single Christian, everyone who has put their faith in Jesus and has received God's salvation, every one of us, the story of our conversion is that you were dead and God raised you from death. Is that a boring story? Is it bland? Listen, the God who rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt by taking the waters of a sea and opening them up so a whole people group could walk through and then at the right moment had the waters go back to save them from the opposing army. The God who sent fire from heaven that consumed the whole sacrifice and probably threatened the people around in Elijah's day. The God who sent his own son to walk the earth, to die on a cross and rose him from death to life. That God is still alive and still working powerfully in the world today. The biggest thing I want you to know this morning is that the God we worship is not like that, that little fake God Baal that, that, that maybe is off on a walk or maybe is daydreaming or maybe is sleeping and needs to be woken up. Our God is not dead. Our God does not sleep. Our God has the power to change the world, and he's doing it. He's working his, his work in the world right now to do it. He is saving sinners. He is redeeming the world. That is what God is doing right now. So we look back to the Exodus. We look back to the prophets in Elijah's day. We look back to the cross, and we know that God has worked in incredible ways. And then we flip forward in the Bible all the way to the end, the last chapters of Revelation, to see what God is going to do at the end when he establishes final and fully his kingdom, perfect peace, perfect justice, perfect righteousness, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, everyone experiencing the blessing of God's presence. And then you open your eyes today to see what he's doing right now in the lives of your neighbors, in your own heart, in your life. And then we erupt in praise. I mean, if you are a Christian, your story is a powerful testimony to God's work in the world today because you were dead, remember, and you have been made alive. So when someone asks you to tell you what God has done for your life, don't tell them things like, 
well, you know, I got a better job and I got to, you know, I mow my lawn more frequently and I do my, I pay my taxes now. Don't say things like those are secondary, tertiary things. Those are, those are so peripheral. The big thing, the thing that makes a difference isn't that you got some earthly material blessings. The big thing is that you were dead and now you are alive. You were God's enemies destined to eternity in hell and you have been made God's own child, his son, his daughter. You have been reconciled to him by the blood of his son. That's the story that makes a difference. This is what I want for us. This is what we want as a church, to be a people who testify to the power of God's grace, to testify to power that's at work today, not just in the past, but power that's working right now in incredible ways. We want to be able to say, come, hear what God's doing. Come and hear what God has done for me. We're turning a corner as a church. I really believe this. I I believe that God is putting on our hearts a burden for the mission that he has given us as a church. He is calling us to faithfully testify to what we have seen, to testify to the cross, to testify to what he has done in our lives so that the whole world, our whole county would be singing the top of their lungs, shouting the praise of God's name. That's what we're about here. That's what our purpose as a church is. There are so many people in our county who so desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus. And it's our job to do it. We are God's mouthpieces, his messengers, heralding the good news of what God has done in the past, on the cross, in the future, when his kingdom comes in full form. And in our own lives, because we too can testify this is incredible grace. And this is why we are here. The elders of the church, the leaders have been praying for this. I ask you, if you haven't already started praying with us, do, do join us in prayer. We, we want more people to experience the healing and the wholeness of the gospel. We want more people to come to follow Jesus, to know him, and to know what it means to have life. We want more testimonies of death to life, of hopeless to hope-filled, enemies of God to his children. So here's the challenge. Come and see what God has done. Look in your own life and see what God has done and then go out and tell the world what you have seen. We want to shout with the psalmist, all the earth must shout for joy to God. Sing the glory of God's name. Make God's praise glorious. We want everyone to say to God, how awesome are your deeds. That is our mission as a church. That is our prayer together. And if that's ever going to happen, God must work powerfully in our hearts. So let's pray for him to do so. Our great God, we hear of the stories of what you've done in the past and we yearn for you to do it again. Our eyes are so closed off, so myopic sometimes, we forget that you actually are working today, now, in our lives, through us, in the lives of our neighbors, through our com- in our community even. God, I ask that you would give us eyes to see what you're doing and hearts that respond with joy to take up the task that you have given us to go and to proclaim. Come and hear what God has done. His salvation is incredible. He has done a work that is amazing. Come and shout for joy to God with us. God, we ask that you would bring your kingdom. 
grow your kingdom. Use us as your faithful messengers. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.